0: Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. To my bed crimers, hi, how are you? I hope you're doing well. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out the channel. Let me just ask that after listening to and or watching the video, if you found you enjoyed it, please do me a favor, smash that like button. And if you want to support the work I do, please consider a Patreon membership. You'll find a link in the description. Now let's dig in. The murder charges originally filed against Barry Morphew for his wife's disappearance over Mother's Day weekend of 2020 were dropped in late April of 2023, mere days before his trial was scheduled to begin. Barry was soon walking out of the jailhouse, arm in arm with his two daughters, smiling triumphantly. One of the reasons the charges were suddenly dropped, was that the prosecutors had failed to share certain evidence with Barry's defense team. It also didn't help that law enforcement hadn't yet found Suzanne's body. It's hard to build a case of murder when you don't have concrete proof that the person is deceased. Despite the lack of a body, the prosecution was convinced Suzanne was no longer alive because as of 2.07 p.m. on Saturday, May 9th of 2020, Suzanne suddenly, Stopped communicating with her secret boyfriend and her best friend, with whom she'd been exchanging a flurry of excited Snapchat texts about the friend's daughter's wedding. Suzanne also never touched her credit cards or bank account again. Those are usually the telltale signs that a person is no longer with us. Because of the prosecution's failure to share evidence with the defense, the judge then punished them by ruling that 12 of their 14 expert witnesses could not testify at Barry's trial. Without those experts' testimony, the prosecutors saw their case against Morphew blow away in the wind like the dust out in Moffat, Colorado. The prosecution needed those experts to establish a timeline of events. The experts were going to talk about DNA, what Barry's truck data showed in terms of movement over that weekend in 2020, and what Barry's cell phone data showed. The prosecutors at that time told the judge that they were, quote, close to finding Suzanne's body. They said they believed it was located in a remote and mountainous region under five feet of snow. So the prosecutors asked the judge to dismiss the case, and they were granted that wish. But note that the case was dismissed without prejudice, which means that later... If prosecutors were to decide to arrest Barry Morphew again and charge him with his wife's death, he could not be in double jeopardy, meaning in violation of the 5th Amendment to the US Constitution. The double jeopardy clause in the 5th Amendment prohibits anyone from being prosecuted twice for substantially the same crime. The amendment states, quote, "No person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, end quote. To dismiss a case without prejudice means a judge may dismiss a case in order to allow for errors in the case presented to be addressed before the case is brought back to the court. That's what the judge did in Barry Morphew's case. Had the judge dismissed the case with prejudice, it would mean that the case should not move forward and should be permanently closed. Big difference between without prejudice and with prejudice. So Barry can legally be charged once again for Suzanne's murder if the DA decides to go that route. So Barry Morphew is currently a free man. But now that Suzanne's remains have been found, I think it's safe to say he's probably waiting with bated breath for the results of her autopsy. He said he has nothing to worry about because he didn't do anything wrong, but I still think he's secretly concerned about what the coroner and or forensic pathologist may or may not find. Just my opinion. As you likely know, Suzanne's remains were located on September 22nd of this year in a shallow grave about 40 miles south of the Salida area where she and Barry lived in what I call their Colorado Palace. There are a few things that we can say with certainty about Suzanne's remains being found 40 miles from home in the remote area of Moffat, Colorado. One, she didn't bike there. Remember, her blue bike was found seemingly staged down a steep ravine near her home. Two, she didn't drive there either because her white Range Rover was home and in the garage after she vanished. And three, she definitely didn't put herself in that shallow grave. To me, a grave means that Suzanne's manner of death is not by natural causes, not by an accident, not by unaliving herself, not by undetermined means. It has to be by homicide. Someone placed her in the ground. I now wonder if the coroner will see evidence of a gunshot in Suzanne's bones. It sounds like her skull was found because she was identified partially by dental records. Could there be a hole or a fracture in the skull? Is there evidence of a tranquilizer dart, either as a puncture mark in the bone, a break in the bone, or in the way of tranquilizer solution being detected somehow in the bone marrow? I read that the darts are shot by real guns and the darts are made of metal, so they can break major bones. Personally, I pray that Suzanne's cause of death is able to be discerned. She deserves to have the true story of her death known. The next big question is, who had the motive, the means, and the opportunity to do this to Suzanne? It's easy to point the finger straight at Barry Morphew. Suzanne told Barry, four days before she vanished, in no uncertain terms, that she was done meaning done with the marriage. So you have a couple with major marital issues and one spouse wants out, and it's the spouse who inherited more than $400,000 from her relatives. He or she who holds the money holds the power, baby. That was Suzanne's money, and it's clear from text messages sent to Barry that she didn't want to give him whatever amounts he wanted from that stash. Suzanne told her friend, that most of her arguments with Barry were over money. That money likely meant a way to escape from Barry, freedom, even if she had to hand over half of it. Second, on the weekend of Suzanne's disappearance, Barry did a lot of things that make him look like someone who may have orchestrated his wife's demise. Allegedly. He's not currently charged in connection with Suzanne's death, so let me make that clear. First, Barry told the cops that his marriage to Suzanne was, quote, perfect and that she had no intention of leaving him. Barry was lying through his perfectly white The officer who authored the affidavit for probable cause wrote this, Suzanne took clear, articulable steps in January 2020 in attempts to separate from and divorce her husband, Barry. She told her family and close friends about the intentions, secretly recorded her notes of abuse in her phone because Barry monitored it, Why don't you just go out and shoot some chipmunks instead of being nosy and monitoring her phone?" Confronted Barry in arguments that she secretly recorded with help from a friend and finally sent him a text four days before she disappeared saying that she was, quote, done. Let's handle this civilly, end quote. And that's just a small tidbit of information Barry shared with the authorities that either didn't jive with the truth, or that seemed highly sus. Third, homicide detectives will tell you that it's almost always someone known to the victim who is responsible for their death, and when it's a wife that suddenly vanishes, suspect numero uno is typically the spouse or ex-spouse, especially in a marriage that's known to be imploding. But for this video, instead of rehashing all the circumstantial evidence that made Bear Bear look sus-sus back when he was charged, I want to examine the details that his attorneys pounced on and will likely pounce on again to create reasonable doubt if their client is once again charged. When investigators found Suzanne's driver's license, credit cards, and cycling gear in her white Range Rover in the garage, they also found something else. Identified male DNA on the glove box and back seat. Unknown male DNA was also found on Suzanne's bike helmet, on the interior cushion, and on the bike seat. A court filing on this DNA reads, quote, On May 19th, a law enforcement agent named Cahill received a CODIS match letter indicating the unknown male DNA partially matched DNA found in three out-of-state unsolved SAA investigations in Tempe, Phoenix, and Chicago. Another court filing said this, Communication logs with the Forensic Laboratory Division of CBI, which is Colorado Bureau of Investigation, indicated that Agent Cahill had come to believe the DNA sample found in Mrs. Morphew's car belonged to suspects who may have perpetrated the crime. Note that Barry Morphew was excluded from being the owner, of all of this unidentified male DNA. And the DNA was not all from the same unknown male. It was from several unknown males, this situation with male DNA associated with someone who committed essays in three different places is like a gift from the gods for a defense team. For Barry's attorneys, this spelled a way to create reasonable doubt as to their client's guilt. But note that investigators would later learn that this DNA associated with unsolved essays belonged to a man who was living in Prescott, Arizona. And when investigators looked to see where that man was, was during the weekend Suzanne Morphew went missing, they discovered he had a solid alibi and that there was no way that that guy was in Colorado when Suzanne vanished. The mystery DNA turned out to be a dead end, and it was something the prosecution could explain in court through their expert witnesses if they could use them. How the DNA ended up on all those spots is unknown. Did this person work on Suzanne's vehicle at some point? Maybe. But even if the DNA turned out to be from someone who could not have committed the crime, the defense could still try to use it to create reasonable doubt in the minds of jurors. Barry's attorneys were saying that this evidence proved their client's innocence because the DNA didn't belong to Barry. More than a year would pass before Suzanne's remains were found in September of this year in Moffat, Colorado and Barry's lawyers have already noted that this location never appeared in any of the data that investigators collected about Barry's movements on Saturday, May 9th and Sunday, May 10th of 2020. So I guess his lawyers are saying that prosecutors will have to explain why Barry's truck data doesn't show him traveling 40 miles south to Moffitt. During the weekend, Suzanne disappeared. I still say it's possible Suzanne's body was moved at some point. It's also possible that a different vehicle was used to transport the body to Moffitt. Barry's cell phone went into airplane mode from 2.47 p.m. on Saturday, May 9th, until 10.17 p.m. that night. Could this period be when he allegedly slipped away from the house and drove the 40 miles down to Moffitt? Whoever dug the grave was clearly in a hurry. Normally, a person wanting to hide a body would dig a deeper grave, not a shallow one. Also, it's possible the person digging the grave didn't have the right equipment on hand. The ground is very hard there. You'd need a pickaxe and a shovel to create a deep hole. Shallow grave spells being in a hurry. In May of 2023, before Suzanne's remains were found, Barry filed a lawsuit against the prosecutors and investigators who had tried to convict him of her murder. But again, Barry's lawsuit was filed before the remains were found. You have to wonder how things will play out now that we all know that Suzanne didn't run off to some foreign land to start a new life, and now that we know her disappearance and death involve foul play. I know the coroner's report hasn't been released yet, and we don't necessarily know what exactly caused her death. We already talked about the manner of death being homicide, but what was the cause of death? Did she die as a result of a shotgun wound? Did someone put their hands around her neck? If the latter, it may be hard to prove. According to death investigator Joseph Scott Morgan, the hyoid bone, which is usually broken or cracked when someone has died by having hands around their neck, is so small. So it's among the first bones to disappear when a body is left out in the wild for any length of time. If that bone is gone, Will the coroner be able to tell if Suzanne died via somebody else's hand, meaning their hands around her neck? By the way, did you know that Barry Morphew did admit to one serious crime? It was felony forgery for using Suzanne's voting ballot to vote for Donald Trump in the 2020 presidential election. Barry explained his crime like this, I wanted Trump to win. I figured all these other guys were cheating. He pleaded guilty to that crime in July of 2020 and was sentenced to one year of probation and community service. You have to wonder about a guy who will use his missing wife's name to illegally vote in an election. I find Barry Morphew to be someone with little regard for the law, not only because of this voting thing, but also because of what he admitted he does to deer with antlers who show up in his yard, shooting them with a tranquilizer gun, even if it's not deer hunting season, to cut off their antlers. That's illegal, and in my opinion, it's not a fair fight against the deer. Just saying. How would you like it, Barry, if we knocked you out with a tranquilizer gun and stole your horns or something even more precious to you? So now we wait to see if the prosecutors will once again file charges against Barry Morphew. The authorities have said the investigation into Suzanne's death is still active. What will the coroner come back with? Will it change Barry's life story? Will it change how his daughters view him? Inquiring minds want to know. I also want to share some information on the woman that searchers were looking for when they stumbled on Suzanne's remains. She is 56-year-old Edna Quintana and she's been missing since May 3rd. According to an article on the Daily Mail website, on the day Quintana vanished, she'd been hiking with a male companion whom she had been dating sporadically over the course of a few years. This this man later told Quintana's family that Edna couldn't keep up the pace with him, and so she decided to return to their car. When he returned to the vehicle later in the day, Edna was missing, but her purse and cell phone were still with him. Edna was not reported missing for another three days when family members raised the alarm. Quintana's cousin, Augustina Edwards, says she finds it suspicious that Edna, who is not an avid hiker, would go missing on a hiking trip without telling anyone she was going on such a trip. Edwards told the U.S. Sun, quote, the red flag for our family is that she was not a hiker. She wasn't a fisherman and she wasn't really even an outdoorsy person. Hiking is not a typical activity that Edna would have done and she wasn't immediately reported missing to the sheriff's office to local search and rescue, or even her family until three days later. She has not been seen or heard from since, and I think that's very suspicious." I would have to agree with Edwards. It sounds very suspicious. Edwards also described Edna as a kind and humble person who would never have left her children or disappear without a reason. Edwards now believes that something bad may have happened to Edna and that Edna may no longer be alive. Edna was part of a fifth-generation family native to Sagwatch, Colorado. Edwards said, quote, you won't find a single person in the town of Sagwatch that has something bad to say about Edna. But she unfortunately didn't keep the best company. It didn't matter to her what your past was or what kind of person you are now. She would be your friend because she was just a kind person and maybe someone took advantage of that kindness. We don't know." So that's all for today. If you're a prayer type of person, please pray for Edna and her family. If you're more of a positive vibe person, then send some positive vibes for them, and I'll see you next time on Bed Crime Stories.